Welcome back to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, podcasting in wintry Holland, where for the first time in years, the country is skating out in the open, on the ice, wherever they can go and still maintain social distancing. It is a winter episode. Welcome. And as always, this show is made possible thanks to my supporters over at patreon.com slash fatheroderick. I'm so grateful for that community, for the feedback that they provide. If you want to join them, go over to patreon.com slash fatheroderick. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Right now, it's about minus 5 Celsius outside. Uh, it's been freezing for most of the week, and so the ice now is thick enough in many places uh, to allow people to skate. And I think the country couldn't be happier. It is. I think I'm, I'm the only person inside right now. Everyone else is out <laughs> on the ice. And it's also causing some problems, as you can imagine, because the Netherlands is, the Netherlands is a small country, and we have millions and millions of inhabitants that are you know, stepping on the ice right now. So it's, it's causing some concerns uh, in certain places for, you know, too many people. There is still, you know, COVID. So it's, it's still risky, even if you're outside. Um, so in some places they have been uh, trying to uh, get people off the ice. But it's very hard because everybody is so, you know, ready for this. It's been a gorgeous week weather-wise. We had blue skies, uh, freezing temperatures, Snow, there is snow everywhere. After it fell like a few days ago, it it didn't turn into mud like it usually does. Um, it's it's just nice, crispy snow. If you've listened to the uh, episode of The Walk, I recorded it while walking in the snow. That was really amazing. I love the sound of, the, of, the, of my footsteps in the snow. So all in all, I think it's a wonderful uh, time to be outside, to forget about COVID, even if it's just for a few days. And um, I think it's still going to last until tomorrow, and then maybe next week temperatures will rise again, and that'll be the end of it. Um, and, and it's also uh, the start of the, the first holiday, I think, for, for most kids that are in primary and secondary school. So... I'm pretty sure that almost everyone will be outside today and, and tomorrow. I, uh, I've been outside as well. I was filming an episode in Schiedam, which is a town in the part of the Netherlands where I come from originally, where I was born and raised. Um, so I went back there and filmed a project about a saint, a very old Dutch saint who lived in the... 14th century, if I'm not 14th or 15th century, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about her in the section about uh, the about faith, which is called the peculiar bunch. Um, but that was that was quite interesting to uh, to be outside for an entire day, and even though it was only freezing a few degrees, it felt much much colder because there was this wind. This town is not far from the sea, and so you've got a lot more wind than uh, where I live right now. Which meant that at the end of the day, I was just so incredibly cold, and uh, yeah, it was it was a challenge to film outside. But I have to because um, I'm I'm trying to mm, get some some episodes done 
before um, the repeats on, on, on TV are, are finished. So I've got a couple more weeks. So we have two episodes. We've, we aired two episodes of my trip to Ireland. Still very proud of that documentary because I filmed it entirely with my phone and nobody noticed. So that is very cool. Um, and then uh, I think next week and the week after that, we're going to film um, uh, a documentary that I filmed in in France, I think two years ago. Um during springtime, so the weather was really nice and it was warm and uh, just a beautiful countryside. Then there's a week when there's no show and then I get like, what is it, 12 episodes in a row that I have to produce. So I'm doing whatever I can to film despite the wintry conditions, which make it challenging, uh, to say the least, but um, with a bit of creativity. I was already super happy that I was able to do it without... You know, getting too tired, and I can clearly feel that my strength has returned um, after months of post-COVID recovery. So I'm very grateful that I'm able to do this. Maybe <laughs> I still have to kind of pace myself, and so, um, but I'm surprised that I'm not that tired after a full day of work. So that's good news, and you know, I I take it. How do you not like movies? They're predictable, like. The guy gets the girl, and that kid sees dead people, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. All right, time for the first topic of the, of the day, and that is movies and TV shows. So I've recently been watching a series probably most of you are already familiar with. I think it airs in almost any country in the world. There may be also some local variations on the same premise, based on the same premise. And this particular show is on Netflix and it's called Tiny House Nation. It is a typical American production in the sense that uh, it's about two guys that are going to help people that have a dream of living in a tiny house, you know, these, these super small, almost portable houses or mobile houses, so they're, they're a bit like the like the, the hip version of the mobile homes of yesteryear. Um, and instead of just filming people that are building a tiny house, they basically build it for them. So it's the standard formula that you also see in the American version of, um, what is it, Kitchen Nightmares? Is Kitchen Nightmares? Where, where Gordon Ramsay uh, is invited to taste the food at a, restaurant that is you know in need of uh, some fixing and then he usually condemns the food because it's horrible and how can you feed this to your customers and then they it's it's very formulaic they they come in with a huge crew and they add they completely refurbish the entire kitchen and the restaurant and it must cost i don't know tens of thousands of, of dollars and then the day after, it's all about the reaction of the people when they first see their renovated restaurant. And, you know, a little bit um, less important in, in at least the formula of the show is Gordon Ramsay coaching these cooks and sometimes trying to convince them to 
to do better <laughs> and to not cut corners. Um, but that's uh, in the English version is the is the is the meat of the story, <laughs> it's appropriate uh, verbiage here. Um, but in the American version, it's much more about the kind of like fixing things in a physical way. Well, Tiny House Nation is a little bit like that. So it always starts with these two guys. They meet a family or a couple, and um, they're either, for instance, in one of the episodes. Um, it's it's a family that lives in a house, and they are really plagued by by clutter. Like the house is huge, they cannot pay the mortgage, and they have so much stuff. And so their dream is, we want to live in a tiny house, thinking that that will solve their problems. And so, the, <laughs> strangely enough, the program goes goes along with that. So we see how this entire crew builds this tiny house, and it's it's designed. You know, this is not like run-of-the-mill, here's a tiny house that we've been have built hundreds of times. No, it's like, okay, so what would you like? What are colors you like? What's the style you, you aspire to? And they make something that is probably out of reach of most people, kind of defeats the purpose also of a tiny house that is supposed to be also low-cost. And the more you can build it yourself, the more you can build yourself, the, the you know, the least you have to invest in it. And, and a lot of people that move to tiny houses sometimes, you know, oftentimes do that in order to, to save uh, and to not have to work so much to, to live, but to be able to live and, and work in, in a more balanced way. But anyway, this program fixes it with a lot of money and a lot of help. And then, of course, when people move to their tiny house, it's all about their reactions, like, oh, my gosh, I love what you did. It is so amazing. But it doesn't really solve the, I the, the, the issues uh, about uh, the way they were leading their life. And, and, of course, we never get an update a year later, which would be, I think, very interesting. Like, what does it do with you if you live for a year in a tiny house when you come from a huge, like, three-story big villa? I think, anyway, that would be the program that I would like to make. It's not the building of the tiny house, but how are you doing a year after? How has this changed and impacted your life? What were your struggles and whatnot? This, is, this particular series is all about the success stories. Um, there was another episode that was a little bit grating even to me uh, as a pastor. Um, you had this, uh, this father and, and his daughter, and the two had become estranged because the father uh, kind of left the family. And the, the daughter has been traumatized and has not spoken to, his, to her father for years. And then after, at, at one point, the father kind of tries to reconnect. But his way of trying to fix the, the relationship is by building stuff for her. I mean, he's very handy, so... He wants to build her a tiny house. She doesn't want to live uh, with the rest of the family. She wants her independence. And so he's like, well, I'm going to make you that, this tiny house. And then he calls in the, the two, two hosts of the, of the tiny house nation to help him with that. So they make this wonderful tiny house, completely decorated. It looks fantastic, gorgeous, super well-designed and everything. You see the daughter, of course, amazed, like, this is amazing, fantastic. And then the program ends like, well, we hope that this is going to bring the father and the daughter together again. 
And I'm thinking, how naive can you be? How can you possibly think that just building a tiny house is going to fix a relationship that has been damaged for years? It's it's almost offensive. I was like, that that's that should not be um, the purpose of your show. You should not tell fairy tales like that. It doesn't happen. I mean, of course, uh, working together on a project can sometimes reconnect people, and you get, but. The, it's so it's so grating to see a program that tries to fix people's life with stuff. That's the opposite. What what I would if I would make make this program if I would make this show as a television program maker. What I would do is to kind of dive into the process, let people build their their tiny house, but then dive into so what motivates you? What are you truly looking for? now it, when when you're aspiring to live in a tiny house so what is too big right now for you what is too overwhelming i think be, in this trend this is not just about i want to you know live in a hipster house and uh it's about the environment or anything no, I, I think a lot of people that are dreaming of a of a of a tiny house and i'm here i'm just kind of theorizing but I think a lot of these people that want, would like to live in a tiny house are actually looking for a simpler life. Like going back to what's the core of what makes me happy? And do I really need all that stuff in my life? That, that is a process that I can relate to. And that, that makes it interesting. That's the most interesting part of moving to a, a tiny house, I would say. Um, and then what also is, is I think, would, would be so much more interesting to show than just, hey, let us, are we going to make a roof that is red or brown or gray? Um, what's much more interesting is um, how, what are the struggles? Um, what are you struggling with in your current situation? Um, and, and do you really think that a tiny house is going to solve that problem? And if so... What is required? What is the real problem here that you're trying to solve? And and how can this tiny house be maybe part of the solution? It can never be the full solution, of course. Um, because if you move, you take yourself with you. You take your relationship with you. And everything that was bothering you in your old house will probably also bother you in your new living situation. Because most of our troubles in life are not related to the size of our rooms or the color of our roof. Um but I'm not. I'm not saying that this program is, uh, is is not worth your time. I thought it was really interesting to watch it, and I've learned a lot about tiny houses. And you still, even though it's extremely formulaic, you do get a, a peek in the in the lives of of other people in di different countries, different cultures. Um, and so it, it 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 it's like a mirror. So I'm asking myself, could would I be able to do that? If, if, if these guys would call me up and say, hey, would you like to be in an episode of Tiny House and we'll build you one? Would I say yes? Probably, I would probably do it. Because uh, it's kind of, if you've been a long-time listener, you know that back in the days of when I was still with SQPN, I had a show called Living Like a Hobbit. And it was this really unrealistic dream of mine to to one day build my own hobbit home, <laughs> my own hole in the ground. There lived a father. <laughs> and uh, it's this 
kind of nostalgia, I think, or or dream about a simple life, um, which I think was reinforced tremendously by me vis- visiting the, the the set of the Shire that was built in Matamata in um, on the northern island of New Zealand, which I visited twice. Uh, the first time they had already removed most of the outside of the houses, but you could still see the contours. Um, and this was all done for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but then they rebuilt it more permanently for the Hobbit trilogy. And it's that shire, uh, or recreation of the shire, that you can still visit as a tourist attraction today. And um, I loved it. It was so beautiful and... I could totally understand why hobbits would not want to leave the Shire. I I totally get why Bilbo is so happy there and really doesn't crave adventure (laughs) because um, it it felt harmonious. It felt like this is is probably much more the way in which we're intended to live than where we live right now in cities, in in apartment buildings, um, surrounded by... Uh, by 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 brick and and concrete and metal and electronics and noise, whereas you know, do we truly need all that? Um, I don't know. I, I'm always happy when I'm on vacation in a country like France or or Ireland or even Scotland, even more. Just you know, walking around there in out in the open you realize that you actually really don't need all that stuff that you normally cling to in your in your own house. And uh, But that's a vacation. That's just a few weeks. So that's still very different from living in a tiny house on the countryside for the rest of your life. <laughs> I mean, they always film it. Like there was this one episode where... I think they moved an entire family with children into a tiny house uh, that is probably the size of, well, a little bit bigger than the room that I'm currently sitting in, but still very, very small. And then they said, well, but because this is a family and they love to be uh, outside and with friends, we're going to make them this uh, barbecue uh, party space in front of their tiny house. It's basically just a tent and some lights and then of course they 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 pay for the barbecue and then the the episode ends with a big party with lots of people outside and uh you know being super happy that they can have a barbecue but i'm thinking that they're filming this in the summertime you know what do you do with that solution when it's raining and and it's not gonna stop raining for years (laughs) It's going to be so annoying because you're going to be stuck inside this tiny, tiny, tiny house. So, yeah. Television only shows you what it wants to show you. And I know that because I make television myself. And I know that I'm always trying to portray what I film in the most flattering way possible. Um, Thank you so much uh, to two of the people in the chat right now, because <clears throat> I'm always streaming this on YouTube and Facebook. And Kriegelow Bunsen did a what they call a super chat, which is a small donation of five bucks. And that is very, very kind of you. And then Testify HD uh, also did a super chat. 
and says, can you please help Edward from Canada? Um, I have not read what that is about, but after I'm done with the show, of course, I'll get back to the conversation and uh, I hope I can help. Always ready to help. But uh, just to, to give you an example of how television mm, only shows you what is good for the story. Uh, when I was filming in Schiedam, in this town, uh, the story was about this saint. And I'll, in a minute, I will tell you what, the, the, the full story of this saint. But anyway, it had to do with ice skating. And so I, when, I, when I drove up to the, 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 the house of the person that I was going to interview, uh, I entered the city, uh, and on my right-hand side was a canal or a river or whatever it was. And it was frozen over. And then it, was, it went to a, uh, a kind of a bend, and then on the horizon I could see the contours of the basilica, the church where they keep the remains of this saint. And it was the most gorgeous picture except for one detail they had built a huge tower of concrete and 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 uh, glass and steel and that apparently is where the the local government is is located so the the whatever you call it um, and it is a awful awful building and it just sticks out like a sore thumb and and it could completely ruin the entire picture so what did i do i spent about like 15 minutes trying to frame the shot in such a way that it would just not show you that awful tower and instead, but but then I wanted to sh to show the water, and it was like I was like moving around. It was extremely dangerous because there was a, a layer of snow that had frozen over, so it was super slippery. But I was like so motivated to get that tower out of my beautiful picture, and I wanted to show the town the way it looked, you know, centuries ago. And there was this one tower that was in my way. If I could, I would have painted it out later on in, in After Effects or something. But then, you know, this is supposed to be a documentary, so I cannot distort, I cannot falsify <laughs> the image. But man, if this if I was just a photographer and I wanted a nice picture, I would just go take a picture and put it in Photoshop and get rid of that awful building. <laughs> but anyway, so so normally if you would stand there, of course you would see all the, and then on the other side of the water. There was a whole row of, of uh, apartment buildings that was built in the 60s. It looked very much like the apartment buildings where, where I was born. And it was so awful, and I didn't want to show it during, my, uh, during the interview. So I was interviewing this, uh, this lady, and I was like, okay, I need to film what they call a reaction shot, where I am filming myself while I'm nodding or listening. It makes it much easier to, to edit the conversation. By the way, you hear the bells of the church here outside. Of, I'm not sure if, if the microphone will pick it up, but in case you're wondering, this is the... I live... My, my room, my current room, is near the tower of the church, so whenever they toll the bells, I hear it. So that's probably going to take a few more minutes before they stop tolling the bells. Um, so, but then I... Positioned the camera to film myself, and then I noticed that in the background, it had these awful, ugly flats from the 60s, and I didn't want to do that. So again, I was like taking... The, the entire interview was 
it took me about an hour to film it, and it was only for like three or four minutes of footage. But I just really wanted to make sure that it looked the way people imagine a city like that. And I've I've had, I've I've done the same also with um, with audio. Um, if if you listen to the walk, and oftentimes I will complain about the noise of the highway. Uh, so I live near a highway, and so I go for a walk, and there are, there is actually a, 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 there are woods not far from where I live. But in order to get there, you have to go underneath the highway and then cross another road. And sometimes when I'm walking in the wood, I I get closer to the road, and you hear the cars, and I I just don't like that sound. Why? Because I want to paint a picture of a mental picture because it's just audio of me walking in uh, in, in nature. And the cars kind of betray that actually I'm not that far away from the city. And, and I don't know, it just kind of breaks the illusion. That is why <laughs> Tiny House Nation, I th- I, it's so interesting to watch it for me because I, I see the tricks, I see how they do it. It's also heavily edited, um, and, uh, which is one another thing that I can divulge when it comes to television making. Whenever you hear a person speak, but you don't see the person itself, and it sounds like the person is maybe uh, sometimes talking a little bit staccato, it's probably because they cut out all the ums and the uh, what do you know and um, how am I going to say this, and they just splice together the words that make sense and form them into... Sometimes they will even take words from other phrases to just form a coherent narrative. And then they just cover that with stills or other uh, footage. Um, that is not the person. Otherwise, you would see that that they, they, they've manipulated the, what is said. This is used a lot in American television when it comes to reality shows. So they do these interviews with the participants, whether it's on an island or whatever situation the program requires. And very often you will see this in American television where they don't really use the original interview, but they will just cut it up and create a narrative with what was said. Because people, of course, are sometimes long-winded. Sometimes they talk about events that don't fit the story that they want to tell. And so they just kind of use the words and tell their, their own story. And, and probably in these re- reality shows, they have to sign release forms where they cannot oppose that. They cannot divulge what they truly said. Um, this is done a lot, this trick, when they want to portray certain participants in reality shows as the villains. Nobody is truly a villain. Nobody is, you know, just good or just evil. But they will, will often kind of create that narrative in the cooking shows, for instance, they will do that. And they will just only use the, the few times that that person says something that could be interpreted as mean or whatever, just because they need a villain in the story. And uh, this is also done a lot with the American version of um, Kitchen Nightmares. Um, and if you look up uh, interviews with participants... Uh, in newspapers or whatever, sometimes you have to dive into the local news to see how they are, how they're truly doing. Um, after they were visited by Gordon Ramsay's team, oftentimes you will you will hear the same complaint. I was portrayed as a total nitwit, a, a, a villain I, that I hated my personnel, that I, I I didn't 
love what I did at all. And it, but I never said that. That was all manipulated. They just used tiny little bits that I said, and they completely left out uh, whatever could paint a true picture of who I am. So that is often what, what happens. Larry did just did a super chat of $50. Thank you so much, Larry. I appreciate it. Uh, Larry writes, you've been inspiring me since the daily breakfast days. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your support. It is uh, it's heartwarming to see that you helped me do this. And uh, I know that that you're not, not the only one who has experienced um, the support of, of just being able to watch a live show or listen to a podcast. Um, I'm getting very regular emails of people telling me that it helps them to kind of like feel, get the feeling of normality in these crazy times, that there is this constant, you know, every week there's a new show and you catch me live and it, it kind of helps you to kind of step back from the misery of, of the corona. And sometimes we, we get so depressed by everything that's happening. So... Uh, I, I appreciate uh, the fact that, that some of you are helping me do that. All right, so back to television. What else did I watch? Um, sorry, I went on for so long about, <laughs> about the Tiny House series. Um, the Expanse. Um, this, I, I told you I wanted to focus on one series and really get up to speed. I was hearing so many good stories about The Expanse, about the, I think it's now season five that is available and I had not, oh, I just finished season one about a year ago. I couldn't remember it very well. So I'm re-watching season one and I'm so hooked. This is such a great science fiction series. And it's very nuanced in a way. It's There's almost no, almost no tropes. There's a lot going on. There's a very good character development. Um, and I love how every character in the story is a bit, it's not white, not black, but gray. And everybody's evolving morally uh, in terms of friendship. There are people that at first cannot stand each other and then they grow to like each other and to, to support each other. There are people that you actually really get to, to know and appreciate and then get killed, which is, ah! But it, it really um, heightens the, 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 what's at stake. So you care because you know that nobody's life can be taken for granted. Um, so they're doing a lot of things really well. And it's not been since the series Lost that I've been so hooked on a, on a series. And I really care about the, the people that are portrayed. Um, there are a lot of television series that I love to watch. But uh, there are a few series that really... Uh, create a bond between me and and the characters on screen, and so that that is now that I'm watching this for this first season for the for the second time, I'm so much more involved in in the people of the story. I love it. So for the next few weeks, you'll be hearing <laughs> maybe you'll hear me talk about the expanse uh, uh, a lot more than you would like. <laughs> time to visit the peculiar bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you're afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? 
And today I want to talk, tell you the story of the saint that I mentioned in the introduction to my show, Saint Liduina. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So, Schiedam is a city that is very close to Rotterdam. And most of you probably will have seen photos or, or video of what Rotterdam looks like. Rotterdam is a, is a harbor town, very wealthy because of all the trade. It, it's, a, it's a major port in, in Europe. And especially now with the Brexit... Rotterdam is getting even more important and, and more gets more, more uh, traffic uh, than it already had. But Schiedam is a smaller town, slightly smaller town, that used to be separate from Rotterdam, but now, now that Rotterdam is growing so fast, it's almost like I was driving towards the Schiedam and I was like, but this is Rotterdam. I was just surrounded by the, this big city. And all of a sudden I'm in, in a smaller town. And what is very uh, nice about Schiedam is that it looks like Rotterdam used to look. And that is because Rotterdam has been bombarded during the Second World War and the entire old city was destroyed. There are only a few buildings that survived, but most of the city was destroyed. But if you want to get a glimpse of what Rotterdam looked like before the Second World War, you have to go to Schiedam. And by the way, it's very interesting that the Catholics of Schiedam attribute the fact that they that their city has been spared during the Second World War to the intercession of their saint, Saint Lidwina. They uh, pray to her um, for her protection and they feel that their prayer has been heard. And so it's a it's a charming little town, especially in the in the historical center. You've got these canals, little bridges. They've got like five or six windmills in the city center, which looks fantastic. They all work. Like there was this windmill, and it was the, the wind was actually quite strong that day, which made it even colder to be outside. Um, but you could see the windmills turning in the wind. It was amazing and so gorgeous. I, this is a town that I last had been to uh, when I was 17 years old. I was in, in secondary school. I was rediscovering my, my faith. And I had these vague ideas of maybe God wants something from me. But what? I don't know. I was... St- desperate to meet other young people that may ha- that might have sep- uh, uh, similar questions but I couldn't find them in my own parish and so I heard that in this parish of Sridham uh, they had a youth group and so I went there several times a year for uh, usually it was a, a lecture you know someone telling a story and, and one of these meetings was also about uh, Saint Lidwina Uh, and her life story. Now, in order to understand her life story, you have to go back to the Middle Ages. And Lidwina was a girl, uh, you know, just like any other girl. She went to church. Uh, She, uh, um, her parents, I think, were, you know, not rich, not poor, just, you know, hardworking citizens. She may have had some um, brothers and sisters. I, I can't remember that. Oh no! Actually, she she has she has a, a, a number of I think she, there were a total of nine uh, children. So she lived in this. And we actually know exactly where her house was 
even though this was, uh, when was she born? I think in 1380. So it's the 14th century, the later part of the 14th century. So she lived downtown, and all these houses are built like like in Amsterdam near canals, and the canals were used, of course, for to provision the stores and to move, for instance, the the grain or the um, uh, the wheat that was used in, the, in you know was was processed in, uh, with the windmills and everything. So. There's a lot of water in that city, and it's, it still is all there. And and the canal actually uh, near her house looks is still the same canal, and looks the same as it did in the 14th century. So she um, uh, she like all children loved to skate um, when in during the winter. And the winters back then were a little bit uh, harsher, colder than the winters are now. But uh, the, usually the canals would freeze over. There's also a big river uh, next to the town. And according to some of the versions of the story, uh, kind of say that, that the entire river was frozen over, which is very unlikely because it's a, it's a huge river with a lot of you know, strong current. So it's, it's very rare that that freezes over even a bit. But the canals were definitely frozen every winter. And so she went skating at the age of 15 with her friends. She had a few other girls from her class. And they went on the ice. And she fell pretty badly, which, you know, happens a lot. But she fell and she broke one of her ribs, and which is extremely painful, of course. She was brought back home. Uh, and a uh, doctor tried to uh, to help her uh, and to cure the the broken rib, but it turned really bad. She got an infection. The infection became an open wound, and the doctor just couldn't figure out how to heal her. And so the girl uh, had excruciating pain. Uh, and when the wound started to become infected and became this open wound, it got so bad that at one point, and this is a bit of a gross story, so I apologize if you're eating or something like that, but, you know, maggots were starting to emerge from her stomach. And, uh, you know, it, it just messed up her entire body. The weird thing is, she did not die. From the infection, she lived from her from her fifteenth to her fifty second uh, year, and so she died my age, um, which is quite incredible. Uh, just considering that she's been in bed for most of her life. Now she was so sick that she couldn't even eat. Um, she could still at the beginning still drink a little bit but she could not eat. So the local priest would bring her uh, the host from the masses that he celebrated. Hey, Kriegelow, thank you so much for the super chat, by the way. Uh, Kriegelow says, the only thing I knew about the Netherlands before listening to this podcast was the green earring <laughs> came from there, which is a rock band. <laughs> but but uh, so now you, you know a little bit more about the medieval times in the Netherlands. But... Um, so the, the priest also tried not only to comfort her by bringing her the, the communion, but also to comfort her spiritually. Because she was, and you can imagine, she was at first so 
so frustrated, so mad at the world, at God, at everyone, that she didn't heal. And, you know, life went on for all her friends. And, and her life stopped. And the pain was terrible. She was exhausted. She, um, uh, she, could, she couldn't pray herself. She was very much uh, revolted against God and, and, and just had a very hard time coping. And no, no matter what the priest said, she didn't get it. She didn't embrace it. So the priest told her, you know, you have to connect your suffering with the suffering of Christ. And she was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> That's easy to say, but uh, how does that even work? And the the interesting thing of the the interesting part of the story is that over time, she started. She, of course, she received a lot of visitors, the people that cared for her and and uh, you know kept her company. And I think it was during those encounters that she started to discover that she actually could do something despite the fact that she was bedridden but she could listen she could be kind she could pray with people and so she got a lot in in return for her you know just being there for for her visitors um, another thing that she she started doing was whenever she she received money uh for for sustenance so people would sometimes gift her something um, and also for to help her family, she gave it away. She gave it away to the next visitor, <laughs> to the poor. And there's even this story, which kind of I think is part of the, the more of the legendary part of the story, um, that uh, there was always money in her purse. And even if she gave everything away, if the next visitor needed a bit of help, she would you know, uh, look into her purse and there would be something that she could give away. So she learned by these acts of selflessness to transcend her own situation. And that is ultimately what brought her uh, to the point where she could embrace her suffering. She, could, she felt that she could be useful even though she was sick. And it was not just a punishment, which she originally thought, but her getting sick was actually a grace and uh, added to that is a, the, the, the amazing relationship that she said she had with her guardian angel. The guardian angel, probably that failed her miserably when she fell on the ice, became a friend in her life. And she had visions of visiting the Holy Land, visiting Rome, uh, <laughs> just going places. But every time, her guardian angel was her guide. And, um, and it's a wonderful story of how she felt protected and at the same time that 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 god allowed her to in her mind travel the world and and go places almost as if god was telling her you may not be able to move you may not be able to get out of bed but with my help you can touch the lives of people everywhere in the world which is exactly what happened because while she was still alive people would come to to Schiedam almost on pilgrimage to ask for her advice to be with her and uh and wonderful things started happening and so when she eventually died which was also a, a very kind of emotional affair at the end of her life she lost contact with her guardian angel she went through this dark night of the soul where she felt that god had abandoned her, abandoned her and that her guardian angel had forgotten about her and that was the hardest part of her, the hardest time of her life. 
So it was not the pain, it was not the the the, the handicap, uh, but it was this feeling that she was all of a sudden alone, and and God didn't you know support her anymore through his guardian angel. But then when she prayed and prayed and prayed, the angel finally came back and told her that she would die. The, the angel showed her uh, roses um, or a rose bush, but there were still no, there were not yet any flowers. And the angel told her, when these roses will bloom, that is when I will take you to heaven. And then right before she died, she had a vision of these roses in bloom, and that's when she died. Um, it's, a, it's a very old story, so it's, it's difficult oftentimes with these, these saints from the Middle Ages to, to, to distinguish what's true historically and what is made up. Because, of course, we love stories, right? We tell stories. Um, and so oftentimes, it kind of rejoins what I said earlier on with, if you t with television. Television is not just um, filming what you see. No, it's telling a story using images. But you sometimes leave out stuff because of the story you want to tell. Well, well with saints, it's, it's often the same. We, we select certain things that were happening. We maybe add some flowery stuff to make it to make it more poignant to to give more to give to make the the story stronger more powerful but in this case what makes it so interesting is that we still know a lot of historical facts we we know where she lived we the the people in the story are all traceable for historians and also the fact that she actually lived until the i think age of 52 um, let me recheck that that sounds 53 actually that's even older <laughs> she that she despite the fact and we know that that her falling on the ice and having this wound uh, etc that was all documented by the doctors by many many witnesses so there's no doubt about that but the fact that she stayed alive until the age of 53 by itself is almost a medical miracle now the story also tells us that she at one point couldn't eat anymore but the priest would continue to bring her communion and the host and so according to this story um, she lived for most of her life by just receiving the host the communion which uh, would be a eucharistic miracle in a certain way now this is not this is not uh, uh, exclusive to her story there were actually several sick people that were said to be mystics or saints that also were reported to live on the eucharist alone even in more recent times with Marthe Robin, which is a French mystic that has been quite controversial lately because we've discovered now that, that the priest that, were, that was accompanying her uh, kind of led a double life and may have lied about certain aspects of, uh, of Marthe Robin. But anyway, even today we have these phenomena where, where people are said to be living only on communion alone. Whether that's true or not, what the story wants to demonstrate is how important the encounter in communion with with god was for her and how much it supported her so whether it's true or not it's it's expressing a truth namely that god can be so powerful and such a strength that it can help people that are completely paralyzed laying in bed uh, and 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 help these people through the most Horrend horrendous suffering 
And you can't deny that because she, she, she says it herself. It's her faith that kept her going strong and ultimately even made her say, you know, even if I could pray one Hail Mary and, it, and I would be healed, I would not say that prayer because I, God has shown me that, that I can do so much even though I'm sick. I thought it was an amazing story. So I, <laughs> I went to, to, uh, to the places where she lived. Um, we filmed inside the basilica that has her remains, uh, or at least part of her remains, because there are some, some of the relics are also in other countries. Um, and, and it was surprisingly uh, applicable to our current situation. We tend to talk about COVID, as having ruined 2020, you know, how, how many memes have we read? And maybe we've, we've reposted them ourselves, you know. Let's forget about 2020. That was a lost year. And if you've been sick yourself, then maybe you will consider that also to be something you would like to forget and, and wish it would have never happened. But a saint like Saint Lidwina of Schiedam actually l- teaches us that a year where we were confronted with our own mortality and with the limits to what we can do to protect ourselves can also help us discover how much we need God and how much we need to kind of um, let go of, of the control that we think we have. We, we cannot uh, shape the world according to our wishes. We, we can do a lot. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes in life, personally, but also as a world, as humanity, we have to recognize that in the end, we're all extremely frail and fragile. And if, if you're lucky enough to have received the faith, and maybe this, this, this time of anxiety can be a moment that brings you closer to God, who can carry you can help you can give you strength and hope even when medically there is so much to worry about look at yourself right now in this situation in in this corona crisis what keeps you going don't only think about the things that are difficult or hard or frustrating or making you anxious but but think of who or what is keeping me going that's the question you should ask yourself. And if you ask that question, you may actually, not maybe not immediately, but I hope that you will discover that even in this time, there is grace and God is there to help you through. And maybe, just like with Liduina, you can become a source of support for the people around you that are struggling more than you. That's, that's what this story wants to, wants to show us, that even if you are sick and... Other people have to care for you doesn't mean that you don't have a role, that you're useless. You could still be a source of support and encouragement for the, for the people around you that may not be sick physically, but, but are feeling very weak and need your help and need your support. Speaking of support, uh, someone else in the chat uh, asks for prayers for Edward of Canada, which of course we will do. That's, that is maybe the simplest way to help one another, is to pray for one another. That's not just thoughts and prayers to, as a way to escape your own responsibilities or other forms of help. But it's still your heart going out to someone else. 
Uh, how can that be futile? All right, that's it for today's episode of The Peculiar Munch. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? It's time for my book segment. And uh, I would like to talk about a series of books. Um, th th these are really easy reads, but they've been very encouraging. Um, and so I want to kind of pass it on to you. Maybe this is something that could benefit you too. It is the uh, three-part series written by Austin Kleon called uh, Steel Like an Artist. <laughs> that sounds really weird, but... Steel Like an Artist consists of three separate books. The first one is uh, called How to Be Creative. The second book is called Show Your Work. And the third book is called Keep Going. Now, these three are uh, also bundled in an audio book version. And since the books themselves are not very long, um, the entire read is like a, a normal-sized book. Um, this is all about learning how to share your talents uh, and to how to overcome your imposter syndrome, which is this feeling that, well, I don't really have anything to say. You know, what? I'm not an expert. I, I, I'm not good enough to share my work or my hobby. This is something that has been bothering me for years. Um, I've overcome it with podcasting, you know, this imposter syndrome. I've I, I think I have a voice and I have an audience that apparently likes to listen to what I have to say or just is entertained by uh, me blabbing into this microphone. But I, I uh, and I think I also uh, uh, kind of found my voice and my, and my style in making television. But the first year that I was making television programs myself, I felt an imp like an imposter. I was constantly doubting myself, like, I'm not good enough. This is not good enough. I would, it would take me weeks to make one show just because I kept starting again. I was like, this is not good enough for TV. <clears throat> and I also uh, remember from that time that I, that I was so afraid to speak to the camera, to be myself. I wanted my show to look like other people's television. Uh, and I had lots of colleagues that were producing really polished documentaries. I was like, oh, I can, I'm such an amateur. I, my equipment was total, it was super cheap. I did not have the big shoulder cameras that my, all my colleagues were filming with. I had a, like a, a, a simple kind of amateur camcorder, a Sony camera. It was, you know, it was, it was okay, but <clears throat> I knew it was subpar. It was not, absolutely not. The, the broadcast quality that um, that I was supposed to deliver, but also uh, just filming itself, I just felt like ah man, I can't do this. I for years I I paid other people to edit my shows because I felt like I cannot edit. I this that is so difficult, and I I need someone else to look at my material and make something out of that and tell me that it was fine. And I was so insecure that I did not dare to edit myself. And I actually resented it. I did not like it at all. Because every time I would edit my television shows, I was like, but this is, 
oh, the footage is terrible. The audio is terrible. Why didn't I film this? Why didn't I film that? And it took me years to feel that it was, that it was good enough. And that maybe my style was not conventional in a sense that I, <clears throat> I, I, I use my camera more like a vlogger would do, which is kind of still rare on, on regular national television. But, but, I, but thanks to the feedback that I would get from, my, from the viewer community on television, I started to discover that actually the things that I, that I consider to be defects and flaws and shortcuts were the things that people liked the most. They appreciated that the most. So um, this, this book is, or these three books are all about uh, discovering, first of all, what you have to say. What is your voice? Um, and, and the reason that it's called Steal Like an Artist is that a book uh, from the beginning positions that every artist starts with stealing, with imitating. No one creates out of nothing, which I think theologically is an interesting statement, because, of course, only God can create something from nothing. We are always using what we've received, and we make it our own. Um, that is true for art. That is why you see trends in art and you see e evolution in art because one artist learns from another and one painter teaches another painter of a younger generation and that younger painter will change what he has learned or she has learned and, and create something with that both is a continuation of what he basically stole from his master and then he creates something that makes it uh, his own. With everything I do online, it's very much like that. The microphone that I currently use, I did not come up with, you know, what microphone to use. It was Cliff Ravenscraft who figured that out. And he got it from someone else. It's like, you got to have this Heil PR40. So I was like, I want to sound like that. What equipment do I need? Oh, God, Cliff recommends the Heil PR40. I'll buy myself a Heil PR40. Later on, I hear about this Rodecaster that a lot of podcasters are using. I'm thinking... Wow, that sounds that sounds awesome. I need a roadcaster. So I got a roadcaster. And so a lot of the things that we do, we get them from actually imitating someone we appreciate. And then it's by actually by daring to to share it. That's the second book. Um, uh, show your work, including what you consider to be flawed stuff and not ready for uh, for, for, for the general public, it's by sharing that you will improve. And it's by making mistakes that you will learn to get better. And the quicker you get over that fear of sharing your work, the, the more you will be able to grow in your art. Um, and then the third book is Keep Going, which is probably the most, the hardest part of the creative process is um, not giving up, to be consistent, to keep believing that you have something to share and that it's worth sharing. And it will sometimes take years for you to find an audience, or maybe I should say for an audience to find you. And, and that is absolutely true when it comes to podcasting, uh, YouTube, you name it, Instagram. Um, I still get likes on photos that I posted on Instagram five years ago. Because someone will find my account and will scroll back in time and it's like, wow, that's a cool photo. The same is true with uh, YouTube. I, I 
have discovered that last year, I think I got 60,000 views on a Lego video that I posted six years ago. And still every year people are watching and re-watching that and sharing it. Um, so uh, don't be discouraged if at first it seems like just your mom is watching what you do, what you share. Uh, keep getting at it, keep improving your craft, keep stealing from the best, and ultimately you will find an audience. And uh, well, anyway, it's a very uh, motivational book, um, but it, because it's compact, it's a, it's a quick read, and it's a, it's a book that you can reread at, uh, at, at times in your life when you feel like, you know, so oftentimes these, the, the imposter syndrome is something you, you never really get over. You just forget about it, and then after a while it comes back, and it's like, you're not good enough. Reread the book. You know, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about my own ambitions that I formulated uh, recently, um, and, and that is, I, I want to make documentaries that are so good that Netflix could be interested. I'm not saying that they will be interested, but at least I don't have to be ashamed of the quality of the work that I do. Now that's uh, everything in me. While I was formulating that ambition, everything in me was yelling, you're an imposter. You're not good enough. You don't have the cameras that real Netflix producers use. And I keep telling myself, that's imposter syndrome. That's not true. You have a story. To, you're good at this. Maybe not as good as the majority of the Netflix producers, but you were not able to even edit your own TV show just three years ago. Look how far you've come. So put, set the bar high and work, 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 and share until you meet that level of quality that you aspire to. And if you never dare to formulate your own ambitions, you will never be able to reach for it. So always reach for the sky, and maybe eventually you'll, uh, you'll reach that goal. The scientifically wonderful world of science. What sort of science? Welcome back, science friends. Welcome back, science friends. It is time to talk about the planet Mars, which is a planet that all of us want to live on. Uh, well, actually, no, but... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we we have considered the the idea of if at one day in the in the very far away future we will be able to colonize Mars and as it is shown in the expanse make it habitable because that's one of the cool things of of the expanse is that apparently there's this whole effort going on to to turn Mars back into what it was uh, and and we know that Mars has had water and maybe future uh, explorers or, uh, or, or, or what is it, uh, Mars rovers that will send over, maybe they will discover that actually there was not just water, but also life on Mars. And so, anyway, how cool would it be if we would have a second home in the solar system? Because uh, we know one thing for sure, and that is Earth is not going to last forever. That is true from a theological point of view, but it's absolutely also true from just a regular astronomer point of view. There will be a, a time, and it's still very far away in the future, that, that this planet will, will stop, will not exist anymore. Because the, the sun has a life cycle, and at one point it will grow and grow and grow and cool down. It will turn into this big red dwarf, and it will gobble up the Earth. That's how this planet is ultimately going to end. 
So before that moment, maybe it is time to start exploring and see if we can, you know, get out of that, of the, of the uh, what is it, end of life cycle of the, of the sun. Um, so Mars is, of course, uh, uh, not far away from where, we, where, we, where our planet is circling the sun. And just the other week, two more countries have successfully entered orbit with their spacecraft. Um, the first country to do that was the United Arab Emirates. Their Mars probe has, is now in, a, in an orbit around Mars. I'm not sure if they want to land on Mars. I do know that that is the ambition of the China uh, uh, spacecraft that has entered orbit, I think, just the other day. And uh, the cool thing is that uh, China has also recorded a video of the spacecraft getting into orbit. And you will see Mars, and uh, when it was still a couple of millions or billions of kilometers, I don't know about the, the exact distance, uh, away, when it was still far away from Mars, it sent over a photo uh, that I've currently uh, projected in the stream for those of you that are watching live. This one is colored, uh, it's made deliberately orange because the photo itself was black and white, and it almost doesn't look like Mars, because we're so used to Mars being red that if it looks like, you know, if it's, it's just gray, we think it's the moon. But anyway, um, the, uh, the, the, this is not the end of all the Mars news because there is a third spacecraft approaching Mars. And that is an American spacecraft. And I talked about that, I think, in the last, in the previous episode of this podcast. And it, it's going to also... Uh, lower a lander. The The difference with China is China is first going to uh, circle around the planet. So the, the, this, this craft is in orbit. It's a, like an elliptical orbit, which will over time be transformed into a circular orbit. And then once they everything is stable and they found a place to land, that's when they will attempt that. The American spacecraft is going to be much more direct. It's going to just arrive, enter the atmosphere, lower this uh, spacecraft, this this um, space rover with parachutes, and then there's this very nifty uh, landing procedure for the actual Mars rover. Uh, and 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 of course, NASA said this may not work, <laughs> which is probably a good thing to say. Just in case this is such a complicated procedure. And, of course, the spacecraft has to do it all by itself because it takes 10 minutes for radio signals to, to travel between Mars and, and the Earth. So there's no way they could steer during landing. But they can do that uh, automatically. And, and so, you know, within 10 minutes, we will know if this has been a success or a failure. I'm, of course, rooting for all these spacecraft to be successful because it's, uh, it's such a fascinating planet. And ever, uh, ever since I was a child and read science fiction novels, I, uh, I've been fascinated by Mars and by the, the, the possibility that we will find life or remains or, or, or fossils of life in, uh, on, on another planet. And I, as a theologian and philosopher, that would be so interesting. Because then, if we find life on Mars, then, you know, you can be actually quite sure that there will be life 
in other solar systems and other Milky Ways and whatnot as well, or not Milky Ways, there's only one Milky Way, but um, in other star systems as well. What will that mean for, for theology? Anyway, that's a whole different story. I won't get into that because I need to start wrapping up the show um, already over time. So let's quickly uh, pay a short visit to the tech section and then we'll wrap we things up. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. People always ask me, what kind of equipment do you use? Uh, just today, I received an email from someone say, saying, hey, I heard that you're filming your TV shows by yourself with just a camera and a tripod. What, what kind of camera do you use? Well, I'm using a, a Canon M50, which is a tiny little camera. Uh, it's not considered to be broadcast quality, but it can film in HD, and it can even film in 4K, albeit with some severe limitations. Um, it crops the sensor when you do that, so it means you, uh, you, your field of view is not very wide, which, which makes it harder to, to use for the type of filming that I do, where I usually hold the camera while interviewing people. If I would do that... And try to get good audio from the, uh, you know, on-camera microphone and at the same time film. Uh, the image would be too cropped, so I can't really use 4K. Another downside of 4K is that you lose image stabilization. Now, I still have the original M50. There is an upgraded version, which I think gets rid of the crop. Uh, but it's still not able to, to stabilize uh, the image in 4K. I have I have been thinking about getting another camera for if I start you know working on my Netflix career, <laughs> which is a Sony AS A7S III, um, which is way more expensive than the camera that I currently use, but also more powerful. Now, but I've I've always told myself if this camera the best camera is the camera that you can bring along with you. And the more, the more professional the camera is, oftentimes the more complicated it is to operate and the more, the heavier it is. Um, so, you know, since the, the Canon M50 can still deliver a, a really pretty picture, especially outside, um, it, it's, it's been good enough. And, and it doesn't have much in terms of stabilization. It has a digital image stabilization, which is never the best it's all you can always see that there's a little bit going on artifacts and whatnot but i always thought myself it's good enough you know if you've been uh filming about 30 tv episodes with it nobody has complained about the image quality so why why step up well <laughs> when i was filming out there in the snow and the cold i discovered a very important reason to step up and get another camera and that is this Canon M50 cannot work in the cold. And I discovered that right at the start, when I was filming near the canal or near the river that was frozen over, and I had this beautiful background where I, where I strategically uh, uh, 
cropped the picture in such a way that you couldn't see the ugly, uh, you know, modern building in the background. Instead, you would just see the old city and the and the the, the tower of the basilica in the background. And I was putting the camera on a tripod. This show requires me to to uh, the story is that I'm 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 on my bike and I'm visiting all these cities uh, by bike. So I had to put the camera on a tripod and and film myself while I'm on my bike approaching the person that I'm going to interview. And I would get back to the camera. It's very far away. And it stopped working. The screen was black. And I tried again. And I got back and I see that the, the, the... It's almost as if you get like when your computer freezes. So... The, the, the image is still there, but it doesn't shut off anymore, and it's got all these weird stripes, and I'm thinking, oh, no, my camera is broken. And then after a few failed attempts, I realized, well, this is maybe not, my camera is not broken, which would be a disaster because I only had my phone with me and, and a little DJI, uh, like, gimbal uh, camera. Um, but I, I discovered that the, the real issue was the cold, and the camera had shut down because of the cold. Uh, now, I know that this is often a battery problem. And it happens often when we go out in the winter with our phones. You will see that the battery level will go down so quickly. And, and sometimes your phone will even shut down, telling you that it's out of power. And then you get back home, and you warm up your phone, and then all of a sudden, you know... It still is at 60%. Why did it shut down? Well, it's the cold that messes up, uh, messes up your energy management, the energy management of your, of your battery. Now, this was still a problem because I had to film outside. It was vital for my story to, to show the city where the saint has lived. So what I, did I do? I put the batteries, took them every, every time I've, I successfully filmed something, I would take out the battery, put it in the pocket of my shirt, of my clergy shirt. It's usually where I keep my bank pass to pay. <laughs> but it's close to my heart, and I put the battery there, uh, close my, my coat and everything and my Harry Potter uh, scarf, and, and, and try to keep it as warm as possible. And right before filming, I would take it out, put it in the camera, and then I could film a few minutes, and then it would stop again because it was so cold and there was so much wind that it, it just completely froze over my camera. Now, apparently, this is not the case with every camera. And I've been filming with cameraman that had no trouble filming in, in, in cold weather at sub-zero temperatures. But apparently, this Canon is really good <laughs> if you're filming in the springtime or in the summer or fall, but not in the winter. So since I still have to make... <laughs> 11 more, I have to film 11 more episodes all of them probably in the in the weeks to come I may have to get another camera quicker than I thought I'll keep you posted and thanks to my patron for their support so that every once in a while I can get some new equipment <laughs> and with that it is time to wrap up the show thank you so much it was a little bit longer than usual an hour and 14 minutes yes it's that late already but thank you so much for the privilege of your time thanks to all my friends in the chat room if you want to join them make sure you are subscribed to my youtube channel over at youtube.com slash see you later stay healthy and stay warm <laughs>